The history of science and medicine you were taught in school doesn't tell the whole story. Our legacy is full of unsung heroes who made incredible contributions that just haven't been recognized. And there are too many suppressed stories of exploitation under the guise of scientific research. As biomedical scientists and seekers of justice, we want to uncover the hidden side of science and make these stories known. People of all races, genders, nationalities, sexualities, and abilities have always been essential to pushing the field forward. It's time for us all to reclaim the bench. So today we have the great privilege to speak with Harriet Washington, an esteemed writer and medical ethicist. Ms. Washington has had a very interesting and illustrious career. So she received her undergraduate degree from the University of Rochester in my hometown, actually, of Rochester, New York. Ms. Washington mm -hmm. has worked as an editor of various publications spanning the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle to USA Today. She has received two fellowships from Harvard University, first at the Harvard School of Public Health to study epidemiology and healthcare policy, and later at Harvard Medical School for medical ethics. Ms. Washington also completed a journalism fellowship at Stanford University. She has been a visiting scholar and teacher at multiple universities as well. Uh, Ms. Washington is an esteemed writer on medical ethics, especially with regard to the current and historical treatment of people of color. Her published books including, include the widely praised Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to Present, as well as Deadly Monopolies, Infectious Madness, and A Terrible Thing to Waste. We are excited today to discuss your upcoming book, Carted Block. Is that how you say it? <laughs> how do you I say think it it's, is it French? I think it's French. French. Card blanche. There you go. <laughs> the erosion of medical consent, which we understand is especially relevant in the time of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And I also read that you've had a number of other jobs, including as a laboratory technician, a medical social worker, the manager of a poison control center, and as an oboist and classical music announcer for WXXI in Rochester. So it's quite an impressive resume. Uh -huh. <laughs> mistress of all trades <laughs> yeah yeah so thank Master you so much for joining us today we're really really excited to learn more about carte blanche and medical consent as well as your thoughts on how we can make the medical field more equitable and just oh yeah i'm eager to share that with you i just want to add that i have i'm currently back at harvard as a writing fellow in the bioethics department oh, and wow. i teach bioethics at columbia as well so okay Great, That's good to know. Bailiwick nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> I wish that we could have been your students at some point. <laughs> Not too late. Never too <laughs> That's late. true. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm usually the oldest person in whatever class I'm in, so um, <laughs> never too late. Like yeah. Um, so I'll first want to get into it. Um, so something pretty interesting came up um, when I did a Google trend search. So uh, we first heard of you as being an author of Medical Apartheid, um, which was published in 2006, right? Yet this book has had a resurgent um, as of recent uh, months, or uh, just as of recent years, but as we'll see in 2020, um, had a huge resurgent. So I looked in the Google searches for Google Trends for the title of your book, 
and seeing that in June of 2020, um, I sent you a document that has like the graph. I just took a screenshot of it. It had the highest amount of Google searches in the book's history. Um, the second highest spike is when the book was first released in 2006. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, why do you think that um, the book has gained such traction again, um, having been originally published in 2006? Is, do you think it has something to do with the murder of George Floyd in May? Uh, so right before June of 2020 and people just wanting to educate themselves? Actually, one of those publishing peculiarities, the book was actually published in 2007. Mm. Uh, I understand why you would think 2006, because that was the original date, and that's the date that still crops up everywhere, but it's not accurate, 2007. And, you know, the really interesting part about this is that Google, of course, is not the only barometer of interest. It's a barometer of public interest. Mm. So broad interest, yes. But this book is, the life of this book has been mostly lived in academia, not in the public sphere. Um, I actually wrote it for public consumption, but because there had been no other book ever published on the experience of African-Americans in the medical research system, um, people at schools of medicine and um, institutions of ethics and public health, not only in this country, but also abroad, have always been interested in it. In 2007, I embarked on a book tour that never ended. <laughs> <laughs> So I, resurgence is accurate if you're talking about popular attention, mm -hmm. because the last few years have brought popular attention to a lot of issues of African-American welfare in this country that have been shamefully neglected up until now. Um, I certainly wouldn't point to one instance, any one instance, like um, the death of George Floyd, um, because frankly, it's been open season on African-Americans by the police for a very long time. Um, but what has changed is um, I think we have achieved critical mass. Mm. Like a lot of African-Americans, you know, I sometimes think, how could white Americans not know that this was happening? Mm -hmm. But it's much like what happens in the medical arena. Um, the profession of medicine has historically turned one face to African-Americans, another face to, to people, to white people. Same thing with the law enforcement system you know, regarded widely as protectors and friends by much of white America, but regarded as an occupying army that's quite mm -hmm. abusive and has a license to kill in many communities of color. But now there's a greater realization of that, both in the medical sphere and in the sphere of um, the public sphere of simple survival, with many white people understanding that these, um, frankly, these life or death um, tensions exist and choosing to not ignore them, but address them. And I think for that reason, my work has gotten wider interest along with the work of other people who have been working on um, these kind of issues for decades, not medical issues as I do, but I think of people like Dorothy Roberts, who's worked on African-American women's reproductive health issues, mm -hmm. which are very different from white women's. She's been doing this for decades. Um, I think her book, Killing the Black Body, had a 20th century edition it came out a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember writing a blurb for it. It's a wonderful book. Mm -hmm. But that's 20 years, right? But now there's a resurgence of interest in her work. So um, it's a very good thing. And as I, again, I wouldn't point to any one event, but I think a confluence of events have served as a catalyst to mm. raise the awareness of white Americans who have chosen not to be bystanders, but to be allies. And that's a very good thing. Yeah. 
That's an excellent point. So when you actually started writing this book back in the mid-2000s, you said this was the first book that really addressed the experience of African-Americans in medical research. So the first and the only yeah. comprehensive book. There have been books about, a, you know, uh, one or two specific people, mm-hmm. you know, which is also important. But my book addressed the entire fourth century history. Wow. Okay. So where where were you in your career and training and what really gave you the desire to write this comprehensive um, chronology? I'd like to point out to my students and younger people that looking back, it all seems very coherent and linear. (laughs) But when you're in the midst of it, it doesn't feel that way at all. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. I remember very well that as I moved from um, Rochester to Stanford to Harvard, Mm -hmm. many of my friends were impressed but my father began viewing me as someone who couldn't hold a job. (laughs) (laughs) Perspective. (laughs) So where I was, was that I had long, since I worked running a a poison control center in Rochester in the 1980s, I had been aware of healthcare disparities. I'd been deeply concerned about them. Nobody else was. I would talk to many of the doctors that I worked with, and they'd be very open and forthcoming, some of them, about their concern about things they were seeing, but they failed or refused to see them as a coherent problem. You know, Hmm. they would say, oh, it's really a shame about all these lead poisoned kids, you know, and so many of them are black and we got to do something about that. Um, And I said, well, the fact that so many of them are black, doesn't that point to things in the environment where they're living, they're being forced to live in certain types of housing. Oh, no, no, it's economics and it's education, you know, everything except race. So, but I saw it, I began to see race um, or more precisely racism as a common denominator in the experience. Mm -hmm. But there was a resistance to see, there still is resistance seeing that that way. So from the 1980s, I'd been compiling all these examples of um, disparate treatment, in the medical arena, things that happened during the colonial era, things that happened last week. I wasn't a writer at that point. I was a laboratory technician who had become a poison control manager, then had to go back to being a laboratory uh, technician when they changed the national laws about who could run poison control centers. Hmm. Um, Unsurprisingly, decided that only doctors and pharmacists could do that, not me. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I had developed a passion for this, but not didn't know what I would do with it. I kept collecting all this information, compiling it, and then I began writing. I, be, I began working at a newspaper as an editor, really liked it, um, became their health and science editor. I could get nobody at the newspaper at all interested in this. Um, yeah. They thought I was being a wild-eyed radical and, you know, wow. um, seeing race everywhere, which is, you know, not an unusual reaction. Mm-hmm. So um, I just kept compiling it. Mm-hmm. Then I went to USA Today and I saw an, I saw a notice that the Harvard School of Public Health was looking for people um, who were journalists who wanted to become public health practitioners. Hmm. I said, bingo, that's exactly what I want to do. I applied. Um, there were three fellows in the program. I, I, I got the fellowship and it was great. And then I began seeing, oh, you know, I began taking courses and understanding that what I had been perceiving was absolutely spot on. It was actually 
exactly what was happening. And um, I wasn't sure how I would do it, but I said, I'm going to make sure people know about this. Um, I found, uh, I and a friend founded a journal, the Harvard Journal of Minority Public Health. I was the editor and I began talking to more and more people who began seeing things as I was seeing them. And then when I came back, I, when the fellowship ended, I uh, came back to Rochester mm-hmm. and <laughs> I sat at my desk as an editor and it's like I'd never left, right? <laughs> I'm back doing the same routine things, putting copy together, whatever. But now I had a mission. So I decided to, um, you know, do this book. It took me a while to get a contract. You know, I would go and talk to uh, agents and they basically yawn through it. And finally, I had this one agent who was so, she was so cute. She's a good agent. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not going to give you her name because she listened to me patiently. And finally, she said, honey, no one's going to buy that book. Oh, oh no. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. And like all these people who I really admired were telling me, forget it. No one's going to. No one's going to read that book, right? And my fellowship director, who's brilliant, he, out of kindness, he basically said, look, don't torture yourself like this. It's not going to happen. Find something else to write about, you know? But I'm a person who now, when I hear a lot of people telling me that something shouldn't be done or I'm not the person to do it, that just redoubles my my result, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, so finally I found one agent who believed in me. And the rest is history. The book was published. Um, and I, you know, I think the timing was fortunate too, because in a way I was frustrated. It took so long, but in retrospect, that was a very good thing. By the time it was finally published, there was still a lot of opposition, a lot of pushback, but things were at the point where people were just beginning to have a glimmer of understanding of how um, social determinants were dictating the course of African-American health. They were just beginning to understand. The CDC had stopped um, denying uh, the abuses of Tuskegee, for example. There was, um, people were just beginning to understand and accept that these things had happened. So I, you know, the timing was very fortunate. And I really hit a nerve among African-Americans because the reality is, even though I, doc- I wrote the book for you know, the lay public, but I documented it for scholars because I knew there'd be a lot of pushback. But African-Americans may not have known all the details. They didn't know the dates. They didn't know the exact, um, they didn't have the reference that I had access to, but they knew these things had transpired. Many people had like a family story, you know, or they themselves had been abused. So I really struck a nerve with them because they finally, somebody was validating what they knew to be true. So I have two questions about um, some of the information you just gave us. The first is, um, is the journal that you founded when you were at Harvard, is that still around? No. Okay, so it, um, they didn't carry it on after you left? That, that wouldn't be a fair statement because it's not that, you know, Harvard was supportive of it. But, you know, very often it's, um, you need this alchemy where you have to have supportive um, administrators and you also have to have staff you know, who are efficient. And we didn't have both of those. You know, there were failures on the part of the staff as well as, you know. So, I mean, the administrator who had championed it um, did move on to another school, but there are other people there who are willing to support it. But it couldn't be done without staff who are going to be consistently there, so. 
it fell the, by the wayside. The other question is that, um, so, we, so Megan and I, we work in the same lab and we obviously run the podcast together. I'm a fourth year neuroscience PhD student. Megan is a, how would you describe where you're at? Uh, I'm in the MD PhD program. So I've done two years of medical school and two years of PhD. Yeah, and we both have expressed interests that throughout our careers we want to write. Um, mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. considered the factors that you said, like writing for late people, but also with the the rigor that is supported by colleagues. And mm-hmm. how would you, um, what type of advice could you give people like us who want to venture out and write as a part of our work? Uh, should we self-publish? Should we find a publisher? Um, what, what type of advice would you give us? Self-publishing is great for certain, it all depends on what you want to do. So for certain purposes, self-publishing is great, but for others, it's not. Self-publishing is not the way to go here because dissemination of the book, once it's complete, first of all, putting the book together, um, no matter how smart you are and how hardworking you are, everybody needs good editing. Mm. Everybody needs like uh, critical eyes. At a certain point, no matter how smart you are, if there's something that the book lacks, like an elision, or if there's an error, you're just not going to see it, you know? And there are certain things about the book that no matter how professional you are, you become emotionally wedded to. Yeah. And so you need somebody to stand out and say, honey, no one's going to buy that book, you know? So, and self-publishing doesn't avail you of that. They may say they're going to give you editorial support. They don't. So also dissemination. I have a I have a very, very, very smart friend, very accomplished, who decided to go the self-publishing route. And he put the book together. I'm sure it was great. It looked the cover looked beautiful. Everything's great. And then one day a truck comes and like dumps boxes of these books on his front porch. It's like they dump all these huge boxes of books. Here, here they are. Mm-hmm. And he realized at that point, he has no idea how to get it out into the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very, it's very complex, not because it has to be complex, but it's evolved to become very, become very complex. So um, when you walk into a Barnes and Noble, when you can, when it's not a pandemic, for example, and you see like these books on the, um, on the tables out front, nonfiction, new books, whatever, all that space where the books are is called real estate because it has been bought and paid for. Mm. And if you're not a major publisher, you don't even have the privilege of trying to buy that space. So that's a long-winded way of saying, don't self-publish if you want your book to be out there where everybody can have access to it. It's gonna be too difficult. Um, And in terms of putting the book together, I think it's really important to pick a topic that you are deeply passionate about because it's a long, grueling process and at one point, you're never going to want to see that book again. You know? <laughs> so if you don't love it to death to begin with, then you're not going to make it. <laughs> you know, right. Not to mention the people, including well-intentioned, smart editors, who will tell you not to talk about certain things. And um, you're going to have to have the resources to fight that if you think it's important. So make sure it's something that you really care about. Um, I know that a lot of people write books for money. Godspeed. They probably do better than I do financially, but I could never do that because you really have to have that investment. Mm-hmm. Um, and pick your topic carefully. Know who you want to read your book. Because although 
you can't perfectly predict it at all. There are books that are brilliant that go nowhere. I know someone who wrote a brilliant book about AIDS, probably the best book about AIDS research I ever read, and it was published on 9-11, 2001. So nobody knew about it, right? So time and chance happens to us all. But um, there are things you can shape, and one of them is uh, the topic. Make sure you know your audience, who you want to read the book. Because if you don't know who that person, who that audience is, then you're not going to write the right book. Mm. For example, if you're writing a book that you um, haven't thought about the audience, and it turns out to be something that lay people are very hungry for, mm. but if you've written it in an academic mode, right, using the Latin language, Byzantine sentence instruction, passive voice, all the things that academia prizes, then lay people won't read it. Mm. So, um, and on the other hand, unfortunately. Um, most, most of the time, if you write a brilliant book about an academic topic, but it doesn't hold those academic conventions, that can work against you too. So those are the most important things. That's, yeah. that's great advice. Yeah. And, um, there's also decision between whether you're going to go with an academic press or a trade press. And the academic press, um, is really good in terms of freedom academic freedom from saying what you want to say, it's really good in terms of having usually, depending on where you are, usually, very good editing, um, but it's not good for generating income. Mm. You may, but that's kind of a, you know, unpredictable side effect. Most people don't. If you want to make money, and if you want a lot of people to read the book, not just academics, then you should go with the trade press. Trade hmm. press, okay. Yeah. So, a lot of academically rigorous books do really well with trade presses. Huh. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting advice. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and the last thing that I always, I'm always surprised people don't know this, but I didn't know this at one point. You have to realize that with nonfiction, you need an agent first. Some academic presses won't require you to have an agent. Fine. But if you go to a trade press, you don't go to the publishing house. You don't go to an editor. First, you have to get an agent. They only will deal with agents. So you find an agent who will support you. Then the agent does the hard work of getting your book to the um, front of the publisher and helping you sell your book to, this, uh, to publishers. So that's, that's your first step. Look for an agent. There's a book called Writer's Market. It's an mm -hmm. annual. comes out every year. And it contains lists of agents in different specialties. So. Wow. So when you wrote Medical Apartheid, you were writing it for the lay people? You said, know your audience. Were you writing it specifically for um, African-Americans? I was writing it for everybody, which is probably not the smartest way to go. But <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted it to be accessible to lay people. That was important to me. But I also wanted to write it for academics. The same academics were always telling me that the things I wrote about had never happened. That's what I heard consistently. I remember going to um, an, okay, an international global conference of history of medicine, and it focused on human medical experimentation. It was in Lübeck, Germany, and um, was interesting. I knew a few of the people there. I didn't know most of them. These were the experts in history of medicine that focused on uh, experimentation around the world, or so it was billed. But there's nobody there from Africa, nobody there from South America, you know, 
one person from Russia. I don't think there are any people from Asia either. Basically, Europe and U.S., but they called it a global conference. Oh. So anyway, um, I got there, and it was interesting on several levels. I was so excited thinking, these guys are going to be able to tell me stuff I haven't found on my own. You know, I'm really excited. So I told them I'm writing this book, and um, what should I be sure to include? And all of them said to me, oh, you're going to, you read about Tuskegee. I said, no, I'm writing about everything else. Mm -hmm. They said, nothing else happened. Like, and of course, by that time, I knew more. I knew differently. I said, well, why do you, how do you know? Why do you say that? Well, everybody knows that. And besides, and they pointed to this professor at Columbia, so-and-so told us. I'm like, okay. Well, so-and-so told us is not good enough for me. We were adamant that, you know, I, there was nothing there. I was going to embarrass myself if I pursued this. And it was, I was astonished, you know, both by the fact that there was um, the global conference had no people of color and by the fact that they were so quick to pontificate that people of color had not been abused. And um, I had, my parents had been in the army when I was a kid. So I had spent some years in Germany. So the really funny thing was at lunch, we're sitting there and I can suddenly overhear some people talking in German and they're talking about the fact that um, I'm going to write some kind of radical book <laughs> that makes um, that basically, I think they called it like a compilation of urban legends or something. I'm thinking, oh my God. I said, oh, they have so much to say, but I haven't even written it yet. But they're so certain that it's, um, you know, and I thought to myself, this is really going to be an uphill battle because they were convinced that whatever I came up with was going to be some, you know, wild-eyed string of conspiracy theories. And they had no idea about me as a writer. I mean, they they heard my paper, which they said they liked. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, you know, they were just so quick to label it that way. And that's when I realized I have to very rigorously document this. There can't be any question. Um, I have to only use sources that are unimpunable because, um, you know, the the reaction is going to be to debunk it so mm-hmm. so actually when we um were telling our friends and families and, and colleagues about um, launching our podcasts and even when we tell people now about our podcast that's the first thing that people ask about oh like tuskegee or like uh henrietta henrietta Lacks, and typically that's like where it stops and i know you just spoke about um how that is like was like a huge focal point for a lot of people and maybe the most popular. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that many people don't know about that? It's because that, as you said, your book was the first comprehensive, first and only comprehensive um, information that talked about these other cases, especially involved in um, experimentation on enslaved people and uh, other people of color. Well, It's true that most people, including experts who should know better, you know, people in medicine, people in ethics, people in history of medicine, most of them only know about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And and they also harbor a lot of misinformation about that. Mm. So, but think about it. My book was only published in 2007. That means that for the entire history of this country, nobody had written a book when I went to the um, various medical libraries looking for information, I went to medical libraries in Germany, in France, 
Um, I was fortunate enough to have the Count Wayne Library available to me at Harvard, the uh, Library of the Academy of Medicine. When I would go to these sections section of the library devoted to human medical experimentation, there would be walls of books about um, troubled research done with other peoples. You could find research done with, uh, by the Japanese, uh, with both Chinese and the US, research uh, done by the Third Reich, not only um, in Germany, where Jews were murdered and abused, there was genocide toward uh, many Europeans, but also the Third Reich um, had really similar programs in their East African colonial holdings in Namibia, what's now Namibia among the Herero people. You could find all these things, but I found there's only one book on the Herero and nothing about the experience of African-Americans. The only person who had um, done a comprehensive treatment of the um, abuse in the East African co colonies had been a um, fascinating guy who did a, a huge book on it. And he was at the conference and it was really good to talk to him, but he also thought that nothing had happened with American, um, African-Americans, you know. Wow. But, but when I looked at reviews of his books, which I thought, I thought it was really good, but I was hampered by the fact that it was in German and my German is not that good. Mm -hmm. so I'm reading reviews of the book of his book, and I'm seeing people are like criticizing him, taking him for turn to task for minor things. And um, I thought to myself, not only has there been no treatment of this history, what little has been done usually gets a very hostile reaction. Mm. So, since um, I asked myself why, you know, why has it been nothing? And I realized that if um, if Westerners were to document their treatment of African Americans and what was predicated on was predicated on their belief that African-Americans were not fully human. They didn't really share the uh, human species. They were not homo sapiens. Yeah. So they would have to admit this. And that does not reflect well on Western medicine. By ignoring it, they have been allowed to completely ignore the way they shape tensions between African-Americans and their doctors and the medical system and to voice all the blame on African-Americans. There's a very heavy blame the victim strain running through the healthcare disparities in this country. People tend not to talk about that. Um, very often it's blame the victim on two levels. On one level is physiological. This profound and very widespread and utter res resorting to biological dimorphism, even when it's not proven, even when the evidence is very scarce. Um, when the coronavirus, um, pandemic was spreading rapidly, French doctors were very quick to come up with um, a paper um, indicating that African-Americans and people of African descent react to infection differently than do whites. And that's why they had higher rates of infection. Um, the, yeah. most, the most tiny, most minuscule differences are often interpreted in a manner to imply that African-Americans have profoundly defective bodies that are hosts for disease. And I trace that history in medical apartheid. So this, there's been this long silence about the mistreatment of African-Americans because it does not serve the um, end of the medical profession. It makes them look bad. It undermines a lot of their statements about how African-Americans bring their own healthcare um, woes upon themselves by their behavior and by their defective bodies. I think that's why we don't. I, I do know one scholar who, when asked that same question said, well, the reason why they focus on Tuskegee is whenever you talk about Tuskegee, you get to talk about black men with syphilis. Wow. 
And I thought, interesting. Another interesting thing is that I've noticed how frequently the defense, the the resorting to Tuskegee, rather than talking about for centuries of abuse, resorting to Tuskegee to explain African-Americans mentality around this, I thought it makes no sense. You know, there's been four centuries of abuse. Why are you saying that African-Americans are reacting, overreacting to one study? And um, it's, it's, you know, it's nonsensical, but it does make sense if you're, again, trying to imply that a pathological overreaction is the cause of African-American wariness rather than a logical reaction to a system that is, you know, that has um, effectively and consistently abused African-Americans in research settings. So it's a useful thing to employ Tuskegee to explain African-American reticence. And it's a very um, uh, difficult thing to acknowledge four centuries of abuse. Um, Thomas Leviste, when he was at Johns Hopkins, did a series of studies asking better questions about why African-Americans um, are low to interaction with the system. Okay. Instead of making this um, non-scientific assumption that it was Tuskegee, he, he looked at various causes or he asked open-ended questions. He found in one study that African-Americans who had never heard of Tuskegee were more likely to be fearful of medical research, not less. So the entire premise of a lot of these studies is deeply flawed. They're starting from the assumption that it's Tuskegee rather than um, designing a study that will let them know if it's Tuskegee. And frankly, it's not. Yeah. yeah. So when you are trying to talk about all of these different uh, instances of oppression that people don't know much about, I saw in another interview you gave with Democracy Now that you try to name the oppressors. So how do you toe that fine line between trying to draw attention to the oppression that's going on while also um, avoiding that uh, perhaps glorification and, and staying focused on, on the, the victims? Well, in this case, I don't think that one can um, serve the truth by being too delicate. Hmm. I am not. I'm walking on eggshells here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> here I openly say, this is what's transpired. Mm-hmm. We've got four centuries of an abusive healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And to talk about African-American wariness and fear without talking about a deeply abusive and flawed healthcare system is unethical. Mm-hmm. Because then the focus becomes some kind of supposed pathological behavior on the part of African-Americans rather than an untrustworthy healthcare system. Uh, that's mm-hmm. really our, that's our challenge here, mm-hmm. you know? And we should be focusing on making the system trustworthy, not focusing on trying to um, force African-American minds into accepting things that are frankly unacceptable. Mm-hmm. So um, you have spoken and written about uh, the erosion of informed consent. Um, have we ever had proper and widespread informed consent in regards to medical treatment and biomedical research in this country? And who ends up being the most vulnerable um, in this lack of consent? Well, informed consent is a recent recent invention. What we have had for a very long time, a profoundly long time, even during the ancient, even in the ancient world, 
even in Carthage and in Rome and Greece, what we had was consent, simple consent, um, where a physician or a healer would ask your permission and tell you in broad strokes what you want, they wanted to do, perhaps, but not give you detailed information. Mm. They'll say, I want to try something new in trying to cure your tetanus. So I have to make a few incisions in your scalp. Is that okay? Yes or no? That's not really enough information, yeah. right? It's not what we would expect today in terms of being um, warned about um, through informed consent, all the possible, all the known risks and benefits, all the other uh, possible options, including doing nothing, um, what's been experienced in the past, what the, you know, all these things that we expect to know today weren't given, but you did have simple consent. And that was applied to everybody, basically, who was valued by the healers. So if you were, um, if you were wealthy, landowning of a good family, I often have people say to me, oh, so if you were white, and I said, no, 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 there were no white people in the ancient world. That's a lot of people tend to forget. Whiteness was an, was an invention. Um, so um, you had, but if you were someone who was, um, esteemed a citizen, for example, in Rome, as opposed to being a slave or, you know, some other resident, then you're, then you're likely to have that. But for people who weren't as well esteemed, they may or may not have gotten consent. And so informed consent, when it, began, when it was devised in the um, 20th century and began to be carried out, the same thing happened. And during the colonial period, you know, a lot of the um, discussion and advertising my book would focus on informed consent. And I kept trying to make the point that informed consent in the um, colonial era was not really the question. Nobody had informed consent. You know, it was a matter of consent. Um, con informed consent came along later. I think in 1957 was the first legal reference to it. Um, and, but by 1940s, the army had already required it, the atomic energy commission in the army was requiring informed consent. So by mid, you know, early to mid-century, um, we, were, we were seeing informed consent um, enacted into the law. That doesn't mean that everyone um, benefited from it. But what's interesting is that in broad strokes, you find that people who were not valued um, or less valued, um, African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, at different times, Asians, people of of other races, people from other countries, people who were poor, immigrants, um, at times women, um, were often not offered informed consent. It wasn't respected for them. But the group of people in this country who have most consistently enjoyed consent and informed consent were white men. And surprisingly, I suppose, um, that's also the, the group from whom physicians were drawn for a very long time. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> Today, what's interesting is, you know, in night, a lot of people in this country don't. One reason I wrote this book in um, Carte Blanche, I'm deeply concerned that a lot of people in this country don't understand that we are losing the right to informed consent. It's slipping through our fingers with a total lack of transparency. And my fear is that we're going to look up one day, it's going to be essentially gone. Mm. 1996, do you know what happened in 1996 around informed consent? No. No, I, I think though that doing some research, there was a clause in um, uh, some something written by the government saying that there can be 
no informed consent in the case of emergencies or something like that? Exactly. You got it exactly right. In 1996, there were two changes to the Code of uh, Federal Regulations. Two. One provided for suspending informed consent with um, research studies done with trauma victims. If you're a trauma victim and you're unconscious, then one can involve, enroll you in, in medical research without your knowledge, without your permission, conduct the research, never tell you, never tell your family legal representative, and it's perfectly legal. The other uh, exception was a waiver. The waiver was enacted for certain forms of research, which at first glance looked fairly benign. You know, things like data collection, various types of research that were not invasive. So I can sort of see how deciding that might have been appropriate had there actually been a wider discussion and people had been aware of it and agreed to it, um, if, had it not been done in such a closeted manner. Mm -hmm. But the other portion of the waiver is not acceptable. It says that research that constitutes more than a, no more than a um, minimal risk to the subject can be conducted without permission. But how they define minimal risk is not appropriate, in my opinion, it's not, not accurate. Uh, minimal risk, um, the examples given sound benign, like the kind of risk that one might face when having a simple test like a blood draw, things like that. But in practice, it's used for frankly dangerous research. Um, mm -hmm. Elijah McCain, remember hearing that, about that young man who died after being kept, given ketamine without, without his permission mm -hmm. by EMTs on the direction of police? That was one of the studies. It's a waiver study. Wow. Ketamine okay. or es the an antihomer. Um, giving them that. Um, at the direction of EMTs and the police department telling them when to do it. Um, and m most people, maybe it's only 40% of you, maybe it's only 40%. A good number of people who are given this end up requiring respirators, wake up the, in the hospital the next day on a respirator. Oh my gosh. That's more than minimal risk. And yet it's covered by this waiver. So, um, Sorry, I've been on my soapbox here. This, this is something that really concerns me. Yeah. So this kind of thing that's happening throughout the country. These studies are being done in a lot of places. This was in Colorado. It's being done in Minneapolis. And um, the polyheme study that evaluated blood substitutes was done at 26 sites throughout the U.S. and Canada without people, give, anyone giving their permission or even yeah. been told they were in research studies. So this kind of thing is escalating. Mm -hmm. Not only in this country, but also abroad, where U.S. researchers conduct research um, and not always, um, that's putting it mildly, not always um, procuring informed consent from the subjects. So, big, big worry. What's the, the polyheme study? So Polyheme is one of um, at least eight HBOC um, blood substitutes. Um, hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers. Hmm. Okay, so companies who wanted to test this, because if they used informed consent, they would have to tell the subjects, listen, we've got this thing, this red stuff. It's old expired blood that can't be used by hospitals anymore. We want to put it in your veins in case you're in an accident <laughs> and see if it'll keep you alive. 
most people would say no, I think. I think it's safe to say yeah. that a lot of people would be reluctant. Mm-hmm. They bypass informed consent. Instead, they use this law and they have it put on ambulances. When the ambulance gets to the site of a heart attack or stabbing or gunshot wound, the attendants don't rush to the patient. First, they open up a manila envelope with a computer printout telling them whether they give them standard of care or polyheme or another HBOC. And then they give them whatever the printout tells them with no regard to the person's clinical state and give them that, take them to the hospital. Then when they get to the hospital, they're supposed to be treated normally. But in reality, when the study was being carried out, they found that many um, at many times they were taking them to the hospital and not giving them standard of care for 12 hours for research purposes. Okay. So when the, um, what I, what I found really chilling about this was there were lots of, um, publicity about this. And it was a lot of booster publicity, you know, a lot of doctors singing the praises of these, um, blood substitutes and telling people what a great, cutting edge technique that they have the opportunity to participate in and it's going to be great. It's going to revolutionize the way we, we care for emergencies. And then you had um, um, EMTs and other people talking about how wonderful it was. No hard questions, uh, no evaluations. And in the end, when they evaluated the data, they found that people who received the experimental modalities had a 10% higher risk uh, rate of heart disease, heart attacks, and death. So it turned out to be more harmful than standard of care. That didn't stop them from testing them, though. It didn't stop them from approving not that one, but another one in South Africa. So um, that's why I have this concern about this rampant, um, you know, dispensing with informed consent. Because people are dying in research studies that they never gave their permission to be in and never even knew that they were involved in. Yeah, that's absolutely shocking. And I don't think it's something that most people have on their radar at all i always mention it i mean i do a lot of lectures around the country and in europe i always mention it and rarely do i mean i think you're one of the few people who actually knew about this study rarely uh, knew that this law had been passed and people don't people don't know about this the lack of transparency is um pretty chilling yeah and if you can speculate what's the motivation for not properly informing people um, not getting their consent and proceeding anyway. You know, it's funny. I always try to avoid talking about people's motivations. <laughs> um, no, I think people do that a lot. And I'm, I'm always struck by, it sounds plausible and you may very well be right, but how can you really know? Mm-hmm. How can you really know what another person is thinking? The practical problem too, I, I know when I write about history, one of the problems I run into is when I talk about, I describe someone's behavior behavior that clearly had predictably negative effects on people of color. There's frequently someone who will jump up and say, oh, yes, but I knew that person and he didn't have a racist bone in his body. Or I've, I've studied that person. You don't understand him. His real motivation was he wanted to help. He was a little crude, you know, but he wanted to help. And <laughs> I think that's a lot of um, a lot of noise we can dispense with, you know, what I always ask is, what were the foreseeable results, you know, mm. foreseeable results of the, of the action? That's what we ought to worry about. But I will say this. 
<laughs> since you asked me. I will speculate anyway. And um, one of the things that is definitely a factor is, the, is that when you don't have to ask people's permission, you can conduct research much more quickly. When you don't have to ask people's permission, you can get more people to volunteer. If you don't know that someone's putting old expired blood in your veins, then you know you can't argue about it. You can't refuse to join the study. So it's quicker. Time is money. We're just talking about FDA approval for which a study might get two around two years. So the more quickly they can conduct the study, the more profitable it is. The more successful they are to um likely they are to be successful. But the other thing is it's not only money. Oh, also I should also say that there's a lot of capitation involved. For example, um in the polyheme study, um, one university was paid, I forget the exact amount, a large amount of money to conduct the research, I think like $50,000, but also they're paid $10,000 for every subject they recruited, every person they signed up. A lot of money can be involved in many directions, but then there's also um, non-material incentives. I think for a lot of physicians and researchers, these can be even more important. It's like becoming associated with another university that has more prestige than yours. Um, professional advancement, you know, um, being involved in a successful study that brings revenue to the institution can improve your chances of um, rising through the ranks, you know, of getting a full professorship, things like that. So um, also just prestige, you know, being admired by your colleagues, uh, being the first author on a paper that, you know, heralds some new. So, and then there's always, of course, those eternal. Um, you know, mirages of prizes that you might win for it, you know, this yeah. is the Nobel material, you know, and, um, and it's possible. I mean, after all, Moniz won a Nobel prize for the lobotomy. So <laughs> why shouldn't you win a Nobel prize for oh. finding a blood substitute? The thing is there are many, there are myriad um, incentives and very few disincentives for abusing subjects. This is what it is. You're abusing the subject when you're enrolling them in research for which they um, you know, can't object, they're unconscious trauma victims. Um, it's quite, it's frankly, Jeremy Bentham said, a man should not profit by his own wrong. It's a perfect example. He could have been talking about these studies. So um, there you have it. A lot of what you said actually resonates with uh, research we did for our first episode where we covered um, the work and that was done by J. Miriam Sims. And it's shocking that even healthcare practitioners today, including one, I think that we've picked on a couple of times, L.L. Wall, who is a <laughs> surgeon and a... Very familiar with his work, yes. Anthropologist. <laughs> and it, like, he, he wrote an article where he said in the abstract, like, listen, people have attacked uh, J. Miriam Sims for this, 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 and this, and this is why it was, it's, it's, it's wrong. And he went through every point and he- I read that, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and only in one footnote did he refer to enslaved women as vulnerable people, which he put in quotation marks. But a lot of it, he was trying to say that, uh, which was basically going off of J. Miriam Sims' own biography, saying that the woman clamored over him to get relief. And um, we objected to that and said in our first episode that how could an enslaved woman um, have have uh, gave permission um, to it if they didn't even own their own bodies and uh, how could they have had consent? And what you said earlier, 
consent existed since ancient Rome, right? But I'm assuming that these women didn't have the opportunity for it to be done. And so you can't really say that J. Miriam Sims was a product of his, of his environment at the time. It's, it's not at all a difficult concept to understand that the Nuremberg Code, the first tenet says the voluntary consent of the subject is essential. Why voluntary? Isn't that redundant? No, because you can procure consent from anybody for anything. I can put you on the rack and torture you and you'll consent to something. You know, I can threaten to take your children away or make an implicit threat to take your children away or harm your children, as happened in the Fenflormine study in New York City, and you will give your consent. So you can procure people's consent by pressure, by force, by threat, by coercion, by undo, you know, so there are many ways of doing it. An enslaved person, or for that matter, an imprisoned person cannot consent because they don't have the voluntary will. Um, you, that's not a difficult concept. And I'm always amused that people pretend to find it hard to understand. It's not at all hard to understand. I'm sure most toddlers would nod their head if you said that to them, right? So, <laughs> mm -hmm, true. But, you know, the thing is, the part of the problem is that the apologies being offered for uh, inexcusable research, um, they're offered by people who are, you know, the beneficiaries of it, who modeled themselves against these people. There are a lot of surgeons who model themselves against Sims, you know, not the role model I would choose. But, you know, the problem is that they identify so closely with, um, with this idea of uh, medical virtue that completely excludes the well-being of other people. You know, who are, one of the things I, I often speak about is our medical heroes. We do a very bad job of choosing medical heroes. And for a very long time, and for many people still, James Marion Sims is a medical hero. What we do in this country is we tend to predicate heroism based upon what we say the person has achieved. You know, I found out how to do this surgery. I found out how to, uh, you know, remedy vesicovaginal fistula. I found out how to treat polio. If you have decided to, if you have achieved these things, or if you say you have, and people think that you have, then all the sins are forgiven, multitudes of sins are forgiven. The fact that you achieve that by abusing other people, especially if those other people are not white and male, is only a footnote, not really a concern. You know, like that footnote you mentioned, oh, vulnerable women. Why would vulnerable be in scarecrows? I mean, who's more vulnerable than an enslaved woman? But, you know, um, so that's how we decide who our medical heroes are. It's an error in our moral thinking. And a lot of these um, experts have, you know, like Wall, I think, have succumbed to that. And um, I think there's also this um, failure to, how can I put this? This failure to acknowledge um, complexity. What I often hear is that when I, when I read the bios of some of these people, like Wall, he's a good example, of the things they've done, and they sound very wonderful and noble. They are, a lot of them, very wonderful and noble. They are. There's no question about that. But because a person has done um, beneficent acts in one arena does not mean that they're incapable of deep evil in another. Or it doesn't even mean that they um, are cap incapable of deep evil in the course of making a beneficent act. You know, that's part of the problem. People often think that if they can uh, portray Sims and people of his ilk 
as being beneficiaries, then you can't criticize them. Mm-hmm. But there are two things going on here. First of all, you can be both. And second of all, he um, showed these two different faces, two different populations. One could argue that, yes, for white women, especially white women of means, you could call him a magnificent person because he did address a medical issue that was very important to them. But for women of color, it was a different story. Women of color, he had clapped them into um, you know, a laboratory, mm-hmm. forced them to work, forced them into these painful, distressingly intimate surgeries, and um, you know, he he's basically abused them and tortured them. So yes, same person can inhabit both personae, and we need to be a little bit more um, open about that. <laughs> Okay, so do you have time for one more question before sure. we let you go? All right. So regarding consent, um, we know that it's very important that people of all all backgrounds, all races, genders, socioeconomic status are included, both because new treatments should be available to all people, but also because we know there are cases where interventions have different effects based on demographic factors. So with that in mind, how do we um, accomplish this, including people of all different uh, backgrounds, while making sure that participants are ethically recruited and completely informed about a study? Well, it's not difficult. (laughs) I mean, because I, I think the thing to understand is that in order to or to offer disparate levels of consent, disparate levels of treatment. The people have actually had to do some work to design studies. For example, the blood substitute studies in Los Angeles were engineered so that the ambulances with them only went to certain neighborhoods, the black and Hispanic neighborhoods, oh. resulting in only they having them. They had, Someone had to build that design in, research in neighborhoods and do that. You simply don't do things like that. Yeah. You simply make sure that, um, first of all, that the risk benefit balance is something that's acceptable mm-hmm. and equitable. Because of course, the thing that people sometimes forget is that not every risk is acceptable. I mean, you can't do every study. Mm-hmm. It may sound very good, but some are simply too dangerous to be conducted. Um, but once you've decided that's you know, appropriate, then you offer the same to everyone. It's not complicated. Actually, you just don't do the work that you would do. <laughs> and then and then the other thing that's important to understand is that um, distribution is also an ethical issue, like distribution of risk. For example, we have a lot of U.S. researchers conducting research in the developing world. And in those cases, um, not only is informed consent often going by the wayside, but there's also an unethical inequitable distribution of risk and benefit. You have subjects in the developing world who are taking the new modalities, serving as test subjects. They're assuming all the risk, but when the um, drug is perfected, when it's found to be safe and effective, do they have access to it? No, it's priced out of their reach. Drug companies are allowed to price them so high, people in those countries cannot buy them. They're not even sold in those countries very often. And yet the rationale for doing the research there is often that, well, we have to test this here. They've got a very high rate 
of cerebral TB here. That's why we're testing it here. They have a big, really high rate, but they're not going to get that medication when it's found effective. So um, that's the kind of thing that has to end. Um, I, I have a, I find I have this bitter irony about the um, lot of debate about whether we should give people in the developing world medications. Um, should the U.S. have to foot the bill? We can't medicate all of Africa, is what I hear very often. In the Ebola outbreak of um, 2014, I wrote a piece for CNN. I thought it was kind of a no-brainer. I was I was explaining that, of course, ZMAP and other modalities should be given to the people of West Africa. Um, the discussion then was centering around only giving it to the doctors and healthcare workers. And I pointed out, I said, yeah, but I looked at how this is being applied, and I found that the three Western doctors received the medication, but the chief virologist for Sierra Leone, who was a black man, did not get it. In fact, he was never told it was available, and he died. Wow. So I said, and then, so let's not, let's call a spade a spade. We're really talking about whether we should give it to whites or to Africans. Also, the people who... um. The people who are actually testing the medications, they are making it possible for people in the West to have medications that have been found to be safe and effective. That means that um, we also save a lot of money by doing the research there rather than in the U.S. That makes that means that we're in their debt. We owe them. So giving them the medications is not a gift. We're simply settling our bill. And it's important to look at it that way. Wow. So <laughs> this is uh, such a wealth of information and we have so many more um, questions that we could ask you, but something actually just popped up um, thinking about um, wrapping this up. So I just want to give a shout out about carte blanche, the erosion of medical consent, which according to Amazon comes out February 23rd of 2021. Um, we have been involved with a lot of like social justice things in our community um, here at the University of Buffalo's medical school. And one of the things that have come, come up um, as a part of the school's response to a lot of the social issues going on is um, sort of a book club, right? Where medical students and faculty, um, they were reading, I think, Blind Spot, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking we should propose this book when it comes out, yeah. since it's going to be you know, majority uh, healthcare practitioners and future healthcare practitioners um, as the next topic for the book club. Mm -hmm. So maybe if we can pull together like an honorarium, concluding the book club, maybe you can come back and meet with the individuals um, next year. I'd be pleased to. Yeah, that would be excellent. I am so intrigued by everything you've said about consent. It's just very eye-opening and I can't wait to read the book. Oh, good. I'll, I'll look forward to hearing what you think when you've read it. Yeah. So thank you so much for joining us and giving us this uh, wealth of information. And hopefully we'll be talking to you soon. And if you would like to hear us cover anything on our podcast using the medium of this form of knowledge, then you could always send us an email and say like, hey, I covered this in my writings. Maybe you should consider covering this as an episode. I will take you up on that. Thank okay. you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking to you. All right. Great. Talk Thank to you, you so much. Continued. Have a great weekend. You yeah. too. Bye-bye.
And also, don't forget to subscribe to Reclaim the Bench on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave a review. This is one of the best ways to support our mission of amplifying the voices of those silenced in scientific and medical discovery. For even more content, including exclusive interviews or a chance to chat with us live, become a Reclaim the Bench patron at Patreon. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Reclaim the Bench. Also, stop by ReclaimTheBench.com to see what's on the agenda and to leave comments or suggestions on what topics you'd like to see us cover.